0: Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Friday, January 17th. Here is an update from today's show. They are key locations in the drama that led to President Trump's impeachment. The Steakhouse Table, where Trump's private lawyer set out a nameplate that read, quote, Rudolph W. Giuliani. Private office, the upstairs hideaway where Giuliani's team plotted its outreach to Ukraine, and the bar where Giuliani's team met an odd figure, Robert F. Hyde, a big talking ex Marine who claimed to have the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine under surveillance. All three places are within 300 feet of each other, in the lobby of the Trump International Hotel on Pennsylvania Avenue, just blocks from the White House. For three years, Trump's hotel has been a loose, anybody-welcome hangout for Republicans. Candidates raise money in the ballrooms, congressmen and lobbyists dine together in the steakhouse, and hangers-on wait at the bar, sipping $20 glasses of wine. That arrangement has worked for Republicans because it compressed a city's worth of networking into one big room, and it worked for Trump because he converted political supporters into private customers. But the hotel's atmosphere of blurred lines— Mixing the public interest with Trump's private interests and mixing the GOP's leaders with its wannabe fringes helped give rise to the scandal that has led to Trump becoming only the third president in American history facing a Senate impeachment trial. Giuliani and his team didn't just meet at the Trump Hotel. They embodied its world. Lev Parnas, a central figure in Giuliani's efforts as the president's private lawyer to coerce Ukraine to announce an investigation of Joe Biden, says he came to D.C. all the time for the past two years. But he says he never visited any of the monuments. All he saw was the lobby of Trump's hotel. Trump opened the hotel shortly before he won the presidency. When he took office, he had to change its business model sharply because Democrats wouldn't be caught dead there. So Trump shifted to focus on the part of his business that was thriving the lobby, with its bar and its BLT Prime Steakhouse, the place where pro-Trump Republicans could see and be seen. Instead of being a hotel with a lobby, the Trump property became a lobby with a hotel. Trump jacked up prices at the bar. Candied bacon, for example, went from $14 to $22. The most expensive cocktail on the menu had been $21 on Election Day in 2016. Now there's one for 100 bucks with caviar in it. If you buy champagne, you can pay a couple hundred more bucks for someone to come over and open your bottle with a sword. Just as Republican business was reshaping the Trump Hotel, it was also changing the GOP by bottling up its top leaders with totally random, sometimes quite sketchy, wannabes. And it doesn't seem crazy to think that spies representing America's adversaries are also lurking there too, watching some of these scenes unfold. A top Republican who is very close to both Giuliani and Trump explained it this way to my colleague Josh Dossi. The president doesn't know it, or maybe he just doesn't care. But that hotel is at the root of so many of his problems. Trump himself has come to the hotel at least 18 times as president, including for three of his own campaign fundraisers, where he's acting both the part of candidate and caterer. In addition, top GOP lobbyists like Brian Ballard and Jeff Miller are constantly seen working the room. And Republican National Committee Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel convenes the party's top operatives for a monthly off-the-record dinner in a private room at the hotel. Over wine and steak, the price tag is $3,000 a dinner. Party officials, deep-pocketed high-priced lobbyists, senior White House aides, officials leading Republican super PACs, and congressional leaders meet so that they can all get on the same page. At least 25 people who have served in Trump's cabinet have been spotted in the lobby of the hotel, along with 30 of the 53 Republicans in the Senate. No figure embodied that mixing better than Giuliani, the former New York mayor who's reinvented himself as a fixer and off-the-books emissary for the president. Giuliani claimed enormous private influence, but at the Trump Hotel, he sat out in public, spending hours at his so-called private office, which to be clear was really just a corner table in the lobby's steakhouse bar. One former Trump Hotel staffer said Giuliani was so comfortable there that he sometimes left without paying, like he was at home. The restaurant often just had to eat the bill, this former employee said. Several employees have spoken with my colleagues, Dave Farenthald and John O'Connell, who've been covering the swampiness of this hotel for three years now. And it really is the embodiment of the swamp. At that table where Giuliani liked to sit, he met repeatedly with Parnas and Igor Fruman, a pair of Soviet-born Americans who were seeking influence in Republican politics and seemed to have access, suspiciously, to immense amounts of foreign money that they allegedly wanted to put into U.S. political campaigns. On the day that Parnas and Freeman were arrested at Dulles, as they tried to quickly leave the country with one-way plane tickets, charged with campaign finance violations unrelated to impeachment, they deny the charges, they had gone to the airport straight from a steak lunch at the Trump Hotel. Parnas told MSNBC's Rachel Maddow in an interview the other night that the hotel was a, quote, breeding ground. Parnas has photos of himself meeting privately with Trump in one of the hotel's luxury suites. He also has pictures of himself with pretty much every Republican luminary you can imagine and every member of the president's family. Parnas says he is prepared to testify under oath before the Senate that the president himself was intimately familiar with a conspiracy to dangle official acts in exchange for the Ukraine government helping him politically. If Giuliani was one of the most powerful Republicans Hanging out in that lobby, then Hyde, that ex-Marine from Connecticut, was one of the least. But his story illustrates how the Trump Hotel allows fringe characters to rise in influence just by hanging around in the right place. Hyde is a Republican donor and a long-shot congressional candidate who just started hanging out at the hotel, along with other Trump properties, and posting photos of himself with GOP figures on Twitter. Over the past year, Hyde was involuntarily committed to a psychiatric hospital in Florida, and he was hit with a restraining order in Washington for allegedly harassing a former business associate, a woman in her early thirties at the Trump Hotel. That's according to court and police records. Hyde sent Parnas several text messages saying that he had Marie Yovanovitch, then the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine and a perceived obstacle to Giuliani's plans under physical and electronic surveillance in Kyiv. Hyde has since insisted that he was joking when he claimed that he was sending updates on Yovanovitch's movements around the capital in Ukraine. But FBI agents came knocking at his door yesterday in Connecticut, and the Ukraine government announced that it has launched a full-scale investigation. Where did Parnas link up with a character like Hyde? At the Trump Hotel, of course. Parnas says they met at the bar. Another development in impeachment The Senate trial officially began yesterday afternoon with a fight over that new evidence that's been turned over by Parnas, including all of his hard drives and phones, linking Trump more directly to the Ukraine scheme. Republican lawmakers appeared unswayed by the new evidence focusing on attacking the Democratic-led investigation in the House for not uncovering it earlier, <laughs> even though they couldn't do so in many cases because Trump has refused to comply with subpoenas, which is why the second article of impeachment is for obstruction of Congress. The chorus of Republicans unwilling to consider additional evidence serves as an indication that Democrats are going to face an uphill climb in their attempts to further build a case for abuse of power. Democrats accuse their Republican colleagues of turning a blind eye to incriminating evidence and staging a cover-up. Republicans sought to challenge Parnas' credibility by noting that he's been indicted on campaign finance charges. Chief Justice John Roberts swore in all the senators. All 100 of them said, I do when asked to pledge before God that they will do impartial justice. But Democrats and Republicans then immediately went to clashing over what it means to be impartial and what constitutes a fair trial. The key point of division is whether to hear from witnesses. Kevin Cramer, a Republican senator from North Dakota, was among a group of senators pushing the idea of reciprocity, whereby the Republican and Democratic sides would get to call witnesses one for one. Susan Collins, the moderate Republican from Maine, deeply vulnerable this November, said it's likely that she'll vote to hear from additional witnesses after the initial arguments. But some senators sought to dodge the questions of witnesses altogether, aiming to avoid reporters and underscoring the tense atmosphere around this whole case. In an op-ed for today's Wall Street Journal, Vice President Pence writes a celebration of Senator Edmund Ross, the Republican of Kentucky, for voting against the removal of Andrew Johnson as president back in 1868. Pence notes that that vote prompted his party to turn against him. Ross was one of the characters in John F. Kennedy's book, Profiles in Courage. The vote was decisive. Johnson stayed in power by one vote. Pence urged Democrats to be modern day Rosses. In other impeachment news, speaking of the Democrats, Bernie Sanders acknowledged yesterday afternoon in the Capitol that he'd much prefer to be campaigning in Iowa with only two weeks to go until the caucuses than having to sit through jury duty in Washington. But he said his day job comes first and his oath to the Constitution trumps what's happening on the campaign trail. All four senators running for president are dealing with A bunch of logistical headaches that come from being compelled to be in D.C. six days a week for a trial that's going to start in earnest next Tuesday. Surrogates for Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Amy Klobuchar, and Michael Bennett will lead events on their behalf while they're in D.C. Insiders agree that Klobuchar is the most likely to suffer because of the impeachment trial since she has a much smaller organization than Sanders or Warren. And right now, she's polling under the critical 15% threshold that's required to win any delegates from Iowa. And that state, of course, is right next door to Minnesota, my home state. So her campaign will functionally be over if she can't perform in Iowa. Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg are both looking for ways to capitalize on the absence of their rivals in Iowa. Buttigieg's campaign has argued that staying out of the polarized impeachment conversation will bolster his pitch as the candidate who can mollify partisan tensions and disrupt the traditional Washington ways of doing business. He held five events in Iowa on Thursday, and he's planned another five town halls for next Tuesday and Wednesday when the senators will be back for the impeachment trial. Biden will also hold events in the state during those same days. After playing defense in the early days of this impeachment saga, Biden's campaign has decided to pivot to embrace its complicated presence arguing that the president's alleged efforts to find disparaging information on him and his son in Ukraine is a reflection of the candidate's strength. The Biden campaign is even running an ad that basically makes this point, that says Trump is terrified of Biden, and that's what prompted this whole scandal. No one is sure how long this trial is going to go. Mitch McConnell says he's using the Bill Clinton impeachment from 1998 as a blueprint, forcing the senators to work every day but Sunday. The trial set aside three days back again in the Clinton impeachment, which went into 1999. It set aside three days for House prosecutors to present their case and then three days for a White House defense and then three days for senators to ask questions and get answers before debate and a vote on a motion to dismiss, which then took two days. It's a lot. But if the current Senate follows that same format that I just outlined and then votes promptly to end the proceedings, which Trump is pushing Republicans to do, the presidential candidates would be forced to stay in Washington through Saturday, February 1st, two days before the Iowa caucuses. But remember, the Democrats, including all the presidential contenders, continue to argue that the Senate needs to hear from new witnesses, And that's a precedent that was followed in 1999. In fact, every impeachment trial the Senate has ever had has had witnesses. (laughs) The vote to hear witness testimony in 1999 led to a five-day break to take depositions, another day to prepare and then present evidence, and then seven more days of trial on the Senate floor. If the Senate repeats that schedule, it could disrupt campaigning before really through the February 11th. New Hampshire primary. The candidates are watching closely to see how this all shakes out. Thanks for listening. I'm James Hellman. If you want to hear full episodes, find The Daily 202 wherever you get your podcasts.